a young documentary director had a crazy idea. She was going to make her first fiction film inside a real working maximum security prison. I couldn't have known when I had that first idea or goal that it would turn into two movies and it would take, you know, five, almost six years. That's right. She ended up making two films inside the prison. One is a fiction film and the other is a documentary. And the question is, which one paints a more authentic picture of life behind bars? Well, from KCRW, I'm Matt Holzman, and this is The Document, looking at the world through the lens of documentary film. My name is Heidi Bub, and I have reason to believe you know who my mother is. This probably is the greatest picture of that era of musicians I think ever taken. Say thank you, Jesus. I believe he's going to touch you right now. The Document is KCRW's mashup of documentaries and radio. I call this week's episode A Hard Truth. About 10 years ago, a filmmaker named Madeline Sackler made a documentary called The Lottery. She followed four of the 4,000 families that were trying to get their kids into an elite New York charter school. One of the kids was a boy named Gregory, whose dad was in prison. And Madeline rode along with them when he and his mom made the two-hour drive upstate to the Greenhaven Correctional Facility. So do you know where we're going? House number two. We were driving up to the prison, and I'll really never forget it because I looked over at this little boy who now I had known for, you know, many months, and he was getting so excited in the car. You know, the closer we got to the prison. No! Let me go to house number two. And when we went inside, you know, he knows exactly what to do. He throws off his shoes to put them through the conveyor belt and high-fives like the guard. So your left hand, kiddo. Okay then just runs inside because he's so excited to go see his dad. So I had this experience of going to the to a prison for the first time, you know, with a family. And that really left a very, very lasting impression on me. I mean, I saw not only the impact that the incarceration had just on that one person who was in prison himself, but on his community and his family and his son. I mean, it was very striking. Um, It really stayed with me. Um, And I started looking at prison films and TV shows and just really didn't think that the story of his father was represented anywhere. Um, And I felt like there is a genre that's emerged, which is the prison drama, um, which has its own tropes. Tropes like the inevitable rape scene and the what-are-you-in-for conversation. And my own personal favorite, the evil warden. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Madeline Sackler wanted to make a prison film that was not like that. A film about an older prisoner who's about to be released after a lifetime behind bars. Not a documentary, a fiction film her first fiction film. Making documentaries is so satisfying and creatively challenging, and there are so many things about it that I love, but I couldn't figure out how to address the, like, interior emotional space of the character without doing it in in a scripted world. Even if she was going to make a scripted film, Madeline was obsessed with telling a story that felt true. 
And being a nonfiction filmmaker at heart, she figured the best way to do that was to actually make a film in a prison full of actual prisoners, something that had never been done before. I couldn't have known when I had that first idea or, or goal that it would turn into two movies and it would take, you know, five, almost six years. That's right. Not only did she make a movie in a functioning prison filled with actual prisoners, she ended up making two of them. The narrative film, OG, and a documentary called It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It? At first, the documentary was just a vague notion. She just knew that if by some miracle someone was going to let her bring cameras into a prison, she was going to leave with footage for some kind of nonfiction film. So this was in 2013, and I essentially just started running through the list of departments of corrections. The lion's share of places I reached out to just never called back. For months, Madeline called state after state. And finally, she got a call back from the communications director at the Indiana Department of Corrections. And I said, look, I have this pie-in-the-sky idea to do a fictional film and to write it with people here, to cast it with people here, to shoot it entirely here. But I don't know exactly what shape that will take. I don't know what will be okay for you guys in two months or six months or a year. Can we just start by doing research for a script? And is it okay if we sort of film as we go and if you give us permission to consider a nonfiction project at the same time? Just to be clear, Madeline was proposing to shoot a full feature film in an operating prison using the incarcerated men as actors and extras. If you can't quite imagine that, picture a film crew in your office for like a month, shooting a movie with a big star and some of your colleagues in speaking roles and you and everyone else in the background. Except instead of your office, it's a maximum security prison. After many months and many meetings, the IDOC and the state, including the office of then-Governor Mike Pence, granted Madeline permission to start with informational interviews at a prison 25 miles outside of Indianapolis. The Pendleton Correctional Facility has a red-brick Shawshank Redemption kind of feel to it. But unlike the old reformatory in Ohio where Shawshank was filmed, Pendleton was still very much open for business, housing more than 1,500 hardcore offenders. On her first visit, Madeline spent five full days talking to the men incarcerated there and the prison staff. We did probably 25 hours of interviews, and we asked about everything. I mean, we really wanted to understand what things felt like, what the ecosystem of this specific facility would be like. And so we learned how things are smuggled in, what's the gang structure like, the sort of racial breakdowns, the age breakdowns. Um, we did, you know, walked around the cell houses and talked to people there asking how they would feel about us filming there. You know, I wasn't interested in going to make a movie there if people didn't want us. Most of our ideas about prison come from the tropes of movies and television. And because of that, I wondered if Madeline was scared at all during that first week. She does admit to some nervousness, but then she tells this story. The first day, we met the youngest man in the prison. And this young man uh, had just been given his sentence. I don't remember what it was, but it was very long. I mean, it was probably a 40-year sentence. And he's between 17 and 18 years old. And he asked me at the end of the interview, he asked me if I was afraid of him. And it, it, it just 
it actually kind of broke my heart um, because to me, it, it just felt like a kid, you know, like I was just talking to a kid. And I think this is part of what we're trying to show in these movies is really breaking down those perceptions that we should be afraid of people who are in prison. Madeline Sackler wanted to make a movie that essentially asks, is incarceration the best way to deal with people who commit crimes? What's fascinating is that the Indiana Department of Corrections, this major cog in the $80 billion prison industrial complex, was warming up to the idea of actually letting her shoot a film that would investigate that idea. It's still unclear why they agreed, but they did. And they gave her incredible access and asked everyone in the prison to be cooperative and candid. Of course, there were rules. There were lots and lots of rules. The prison made it very clear that we were there with their approval and that they could take away that approval at any moment. And they did. And they did, yeah, a number of times in the filming process of both movies. Hmm. For me, every time we were able to be in the prison was sort of like a gift, you know? Like yeah. I just never, ever knew if we were going to be able to go back. So the documentary was on hold at this point because it was all we could do to figure out how to shoot a fiction film in the prison. Um, so I left um, with tons of notes uh, that included language and turns of phrase and ideas for characters and storylines. And Steve, the writer, and I um, holed up in an office and broke down the story. So we wrote out the treatment and the outline. Um, and Steve wrote the screenplay based on that. Stephen Belber's script flushed out Madeline's idea about the OG of the film's title, an older prisoner and former shot caller named Lewis. While Lewis is trying to avoid trouble during his last months inside, the arrival of a young kid named Beecher threatens to drag him back into gang politics. Belber worked hard to avoid the tropes of the genre. Lewis was older, but not necessarily wiser. There was no rape scene, and instead of an evil warden, there was a flawed but very human prison investigator. So we just, at that point, said, like, can we come back again to workshop the script there to make sure, like, it sounds good to people, that the story feels real, that the characters feel developed. Um, And while we're there... Can we do like info sessions with this idea of holding an open casting call? And so the prison said, okay. So you show up, there's a parking lot, which is very far away. You walk down this long pathway up to sort of an imposing 20 foot high concrete impenetrable walls that now have barbed wire on top. And you go in and to the right is a waiting room where there are almost always families who look despondent waiting, um, which is hard to see. Hmm. So if you're on the list, um, they stamp your hand and then there's kind of like an airplane security situation. So all the cameras have to be taken apart and put back together. Um, All the lenses have to be gone through. They literally will count the batteries. They'll count the wires. And then they pat you down. And they check you with one of the metal detectors. um, And then they check the bottom of your feet and all of that kind of thing. Um, So you get dressed again and put all of your equipment back together. And then there's a series of one, two, three, four five, six gates. 
Once inside, Madeline and screenwriter Stephen Belber held information sessions for group after group of 20 or 30 men. The men sat listening intently. Some of them took notes. Yeah, so thank you guys so much um, for coming. So I think what we'll do today, sort of quickly if we can, is basically um, tell you a little bit about ourselves, mostly though about the project we're hoping to do here later this year. Um, They talked about the the process. They talked about the pay, which was a hell of a lot more than the 50 cents an hour they got for working in the laundry. Um, it's a flat rate for everybody. It's called Most Favored Nations. It's a very typical like indie film um, agreement where everyone's being paid the same. We don't know exactly the amount because it depends on the final budget for the film. So and they tried to answer any questions the men had. We're on the set, but we still have to eat the state food. <laughs> Sitting in a circle in the baggy, latte-colored jumpsuits they call browns, the men read from the script and gave their thoughts. There was a hidden agenda because he didn't he didn't know that well, he the, gets played right. Yeah. He gets played. He doesn't know reaches a pond in a more uh, elaborate scheme. So he thought he was helping Beach in one way, but Beach really is uh, and probate would be another word yeah, than right. recruit. Yeah. yeah, they need uh, they need people. Right. Yeah. So basically, if Lewis been on, on the up and down, on the straight and narrow, he all right. Yeah. But if he been trying to the prison outside, was getting more and more into the movie project. But Hollywood still hadn't gotten on board. This was going to be a union shoot. And believe it or not, most of the incarcerated men Madeline wanted to cast didn't have union cards. So she had to prove to the Actors Guild that the prison inmates were, quote-unquote, especially qualified to play prison inmates. And she had to convince a big name to spend weeks working inside a maximum security prison. And she was setting her sights on Jeffrey Wright, the star of Westworld. And he and I take a a trip for him to meet people and to do a table reading and see how that feels. I'm an actor, but it's, for me, less about you understanding what I do than me understanding what you do, right? Because... You have an authentic understanding of this that I have to create. You know what I mean? Right, I do. It's just about kind of letting it flow, you know? Everything about performing, really and being you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Be legitimate. Man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, you can smell a fake, you know? You right. can, you know when something <coughs> isn't real. Right. And so what's so, interesting about that is that this, the, 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 the fake that will be smelled would be me. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Wright would ultimately sign on to the film. But would his performance and Madeline's movie smell like a fake? We'll find out in a minute. You're listening to The Document. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Holzman, and this is The Document from KCRW. Today's episode is A Hard Truth. Documentary filmmaker Madeline Sackler had a crazy idea. She was going to shoot her first fiction film in a functioning maximum security prison. Jeffrey Wright was attached to star as the OG of the film's title, but she was also going to cast some of the prison inmates and staff as actors and extras. 
just getting the approval from the prison system for such a thing had been a monumental undertaking. And that was the easy part. So when I went to do that first round of interviews for the week, we pretty much just showed up. So we were told, you know, simple things like, don't take anything from anyone. You obviously can't give anything to anyone. But right before we had to shoot, when all of the crew was coming in, so now it's much more people than just me. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had 25 or so people, up to 30. Um, Everybody had to go through several hours of what they called inmate manipulation training or like hostage crisis scenarios. Madeline was finally about to get the green light from the authorities to shoot her film. But she was also beginning to understand what it would really be like to work inside the prison. The crew would always have to move together as a group and always have at least one minder. The whole group would only be allowed to have three cell phones. Locations could be okayed, but then become unavailable at the last minute. Inmates might have their privileges taken away and disappear with no notice or explanation the crew would have to keep careful track of every item they took into the prison, every C-clamp and battery charger and pen. Meanwhile, the prison would be keeping careful track of all of them. They're having to account in every single moment where all of the crew is and where all of the men are that are in that scene. So they're actually having to write into all of the cell houses to let those guards know that it's okay to let certain people out to be filming scenes with us. They have to let the towers know that those men will be crossing the yard at that moment, and so on. Given what she was discovering, it would have made sense for Madeline to start paring down the script to use less of the men or shoot in fewer locations. But not only did she forge ahead as planned, she started to think again about some of the nonfiction footage she wanted to get as well. And she asked the prison if she could hold a crash course in documentary filmmaking for a small group of men. To just see if anyone sort of like took to the camera, like took to filmmaking, thinking that it would be really cool to have sort of like in the spirit of the whole project, to have someone in the prison filming all the behind the scenes stuff during OG. And I've been approved to lead this class. Just before we found out that Jeffrey's shooting schedule for Westworld was pushing for like the third time um, and we wouldn't be shooting OG that fall. So it turned out that it wasn't the Byzantine machinations of the correctional system that would hold up the shoot. It was Hollywood. But Madeline took advantage of the delay and she threw herself into the documentary class. It was just her and something like 14 men from their mid-20s to their mid-50s. Some of them knew each other, some of them didn't. All of them were serving very, very long sentences. And it was clear from their applications that a lot of them had never even seen a documentary. So I asked in advance of the class if the prison would let me do like an unofficial documentary film festival, which they did. The authorities approved 10 movies for the Pendleton Correctional Facility Unofficial Documentary Film Festival. They'd be shown over the prison-wide closed-circuit TV system. I won't remember all of them off the top of my head, but they showed Searching for Sugar Man, Murder Ball, Waltz with Bashir, um, that movie about the joke. (laughs) The Aristocrats. You did not. Yeah. The Aristocrats is about the filthy filthy joke that comedians only tell each other. He is completely covered with... As she blows a smoke ring out of her... And then we all drop our drawers and take a huge... The aristocrats. (laughs) The aristocrats. The aristocrats. 
It tells you something that while the authorities gave the okay for that one, they didn't approve showing Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing, which had been nominated for an Oscar. But yeah, so by the time the class came up, I thought at least, you know, we would have a place to start, you know? Generally, I think the week started with everybody feeling a little bit trepidatious. Is this, are we here applying to help out with camera work? No, you would be directing the movie. I remember, you know, walking into the room and really wondering, like, what do people expect and want out of this thing? And I have a feeling they felt the same way. You know, we were kind of like cautiously walking around each other and issues. Actually, I would hope for that you would be the filmmaker and I would be your partner. Okay, so we got so, a little, little learning. Try not there. to say partner in crime. That's so, okay. <laughs> hey, the, the best way to be in here is real. As soon as I started showing clips from these amazing films, it just broke down a lot of those barriers. I just want to look at a couple very different examples of movies. So I think let's watch the beginning of Grizzly Man. I'm out in the prime cut of the big green. Behind me is Ed. The class loosened up as they talked about the movies and practiced with a state-of-the-art camera. Kind of fun. I'm playing. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino. I'm a good cameraman. You know, we were in like hour six of the day or something, and I was like, how can we get into this idea of interviewing? I was thinking what could be cool to do is split you into pairs. You're going to interview each other. And so I told them that, like, you could spend the whole time talking about what the person dreamed about last night, or you can talk about, you know, if if what you're curious about is their childhood or their life story, like, feel free, whatever you want. But then you'll be sharing their story to the class, like, to the whole group afterwards. So I just didn't, didn't know what to expect. And it was... Extraordinary. From his stepdad and his father, as much as he didn't want to be like them, in so many ways he started becoming them. Unfortunately, his father, you know, uh, led a life of crime as well. I was a DNF student. He was an A student, A and B student, a good student. Um, his his life. If I would have had um, more of his life, I, I really felt that my life would have went a whole different direction. So um, that's what I got out of his interview. Like, each person was so committed to telling the truth about their partner and wanting the group to understand the truth, like either what was funny about it or moving or heartbreaking. As 18, the superintendent of the juvenile center took him in. He spent on his wrongdoings under their benevolent custodianship, where he stole from them and whatnot. While they never abandoned him, no matter his crimes in the house or out of to where they're stealing his life today and come to see him on regular visits. I can see his endearment and love for them at this point in the interview. His emotional attachment was written all over his face. I thank him for the interview and his candid reflection of his life. That's great. Awesome. That was a lot. Is it strange to hear told back to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, it's just, it's real, you know, since I was 10 years old. 
I haven't even been on the streets two years. And then, also, each of them had their own point of view. So they had their own point of view infused into the story of the other person. And that's, that's what documentary filmmaking is. So before teaching the class, I didn't really have a film in mind. I just had this thought of, like, what, what would it be like to give cameras to people here if the prison would let me do that? And then when those interviews happened, it felt like there was actually a movie to me. From the beginning, Madeline Sackler had this feeling that there was a documentary waiting for her somewhere behind the walls of the Pendleton Correctional Facility. She just didn't know exactly what it was. And now she could see it, and so could the men in her class. The prison ultimately denied the request to have the inmates roam around the place with cameras. But they did say it would be okay for them to continue to work on some kind of documentary. And although a couple of guys in the class appear in the narrative feature, the two productions were kept largely separate. But the documentary group still had a big impact on the fiction film. You know, I just, I I really needed to be sure that it was okay to be there. And by the end of the week of the workshop, I was completely sure. Like, I just didn't have any question in my mind at that point that shooting OG together would be a a life-changing experience for everybody involved. Um, And I wasn't sure before. Madeline had created real relationships with the men during the eight-hour days of the documentary class. The time she spent with them helped quiet some of the lingering fears she had about this project. Could she really tell a true story in a prison? Or was this somehow adding to the inmates' exploitation? Would the non-actor inmates really be believable? Would an actor really be believable as an inmate? Could she avoid the tropes that seemed so unavoidable in prison movies? Especially the full-on race riot they were going to shoot in the cafeteria. What worried her crew was whipping up a room full of men convicted of violent crimes into a violent frenzy. Oliver Stone had tried to shoot a similar scene in a prison for natural-born killers, and that had turned into mayhem and a prison-wide lockdown. But the prison authorities and the incarcerated men assured her that it would be fine. And in June of 2016, all the yellow lights that Madeline had been experiencing up until that point turned green. And it was time to shoot her fiction film, including that riot scene. Actually, the riot scene was one of, I mean, it was one of the most fun days to shoot. The second we yelled cut to the scene, everybody started hugging each other uh, and laughing. With the fiction film headed to the edit room, the documentary crew went back to work. When we went back for a shoot, part of the time was set aside to screen cuts for them and to get their feedback. Um, and we did that a number of times throughout um, throughout the edit. So, but what I do like that's different from the rest is the part that there are men in prison doing their own documentary. Those conversations about making the film, combined with the men's interviews of each other, became the heart of the documentary. In the most arresting moments of the film, you hear someone describe what they want to see, and it actually appears on film. If we do a movie about us, what would we want to open from from our past to open who we are if they were introducing us as a character? For me, the camera would be looking at an eight- or nine-year-old boy. 
and the camera moves around real slowly to see what the child is looking at. And the child is looking at Pendleton Correctional Center. OG and It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It? premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival last year. They were followed by Q&As with special guests who, for obvious reasons, weren't able to attend in person. Um, I'm to throw to the video conference now. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, some of the other filmmakers. So, in the case of these two films, do you have a sense about which one is more true? Uh, they're both really, really true, (laughs) I think. Someone was actually saying to me yesterday, there are two moments of time in your incarceration that are very, very different than any other time you're in prison. And it's the moment you arrive, and it's the moment you leave. And so in OG, you know, you get a little bit of a look at both of those times because you have Beecher arriving and Lewis trying to prepare to leave. In the documentary, we're in the middle. You know what I mean? Like the men, no one's about to get out. No one's just gotten there. That's where they are. And they're going to be there for a long time. And so they're much more, there's more space, I think, to reflect on how they got there and how they feel about the future. You know, on the one hand, hard truth isn't about being in prison. Um, It's about the pathway to prison, as the men kind of unpacked it. Um, They really weren't focused on their time in prison. What they were really interested in, and this was consistent from the first time I interviewed them for the class and asked them why they would want to make a movie, nine out of the ten of them all said that what they think about, you know, all the time is whether they can help. Um, another person from not ending up in prison. Ultimately, both OG and Hard Truth are about the dehumanizing effect of incarceration. But I think you really get the best sense of that when you watch them back to back. In the fiction film, even the quiet, thoughtful characters like the OG Lewis are hard. They have a protective shell. And it's really striking that the guys in the documentary don't seem like that at all. So um, I forget who said this, but they said... You know, we never get to do anything like this. Like, we never get to know each other in a safe way. And I was like, well, why Why is that? I mean, you spend a lot of time with each other in certain circumstances. And they said, well, you know, in prison, any piece of information, whether it's about having a son or who your parents were or where you're from, can be used against you. And that really, I mean... That really struck me, like this fact that when you're incarcerated, you really aren't able to trust and what that would do to you over many decades. You know, again, thinking about, well, what's it like when you get out? Like, what's it like to get out of a place where you're not able to share anything at all about yourself um, and to go uh, back into a society where, you know, trust is kind of expected? Except for their clothes and maybe their tattoos. If you met the guys in the documentary at your local Starbucks, you probably wouldn't have any clue that they'd spend time in prison. And that is ultimately the point of their movie. They're not convicts or prisoners. They're men convicted of a crime and placed in prison. But the world has a hard time seeing it that way. And maybe it has nothing to do with that. 
But it's an interesting coincidence that while HBO has listed them as co-directors, their names suddenly disappeared from the IMDb page for their film. They were on there, and now they've, we just discovered a few days ago that they've been removed. So What? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. yeah. Madeline Sackler is working hard on getting their credits back up. But for the record, the directors of It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It? are Dennis Brown, Marshawn Bugs, Algernon Coleman, James Collins, Franklin Cox, Brandon Kreider, Clifford Ellswick, Quintus Hardiman, Joseph Henderson, Charles Lawrence, Herb Robertson, Rashawn Tanksley, and Mark Thacker. And that's the document for this week. You can see OG and It's a Hard Truth, Ain't It? on HBO and on HBO streaming services now. For more information about what you heard on today's show, including the full list of films in the Pendleton Correctional Facility Unofficial Documentary Film Festival, go to kcrw.com slash the document. We've also got information and links to the clips in the intro to the show. If you want to communicate with us, and I hope that you will, send us an email at thedocument at kcrw.org or get social with us at documentkcrw on Facebook or Twitter. And please rate us on iTunes. I'm Matt Holzman, and I produce today's show with Sarah Pellegrini, Mike Schlitt, and Ray Guarna. Jess Kung is our production intern. Thanks to the International Documentary Association for their assistance, The Document is a production of KCRW. KCRW.